0: We come back to the gospel mission of King Jesus as we see it expressed in Matthew chapter 10 in, in uh, a compilation of, of Jesus' teachings on what it means to follow him in this world, what it means to follow him in what can be an inhospitable world to his followers, to those that are on his gospel mission. We look here this morning about what it means to be seriously sincere, a serious sincerity about following Christ. That's what we are called to. Is a sincerity to be serious about following Christ. This doesn't this doesn't necessarily mean serious in the sense of deadpan and no enjoyment or or laughing. I I you know, if, if I like a good laugh especially in a sermon. And uh i got to be careful having spent 10 days being sick and then one week on vacation to talk about a, a man who was overweight, but uh, a man stepped onto the scales one day with his friend and he was like, okay, I'm going to get on these scales and see how well this diet has been going and, and he exclaims, I can't believe it, I began this diet last week and, I, and I'm even heavier than when I started, so he decides, okay, here, hold my glasses Give it to him, he's like, that didn't help. Reaches into one pocket and it says, Here, hold my wallet. It's like, it still didn't help. Reaches in the other pocket pocket and he says, Hold my Twinkies. <laughs> you can see the problem there. It's clear that his seriousness about his diet wasn't very sincere. We need to respond to the call to follow Christ with a serious level of sincerity. That's what Jesus calls for. That's really what it means to walk in faith. It's to me, it means to walk as if you're standing before God right now. It's the most important calling that a person could ever have on their lives. To follow Christ. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the situation of choosing whether we should fear man or God. One of you told me last week that as we come back here Uh, to Jesus' teachings of his disciples as he's sending them out, that this is one of the worst recruitment speeches ever. Having just told his disciples in verses 24 through 25, as we looked at last week, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. That's all good, but then he turns to how he was being treated. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, in other words, the devil, how much more will they malign those of the household? In other words, how much more are they going to malign those who follow Christ if they malign the Christ that they claim to be following? Jesus directs his followers to how to respond to being treated like he was being treated. And so we pick up in verse 26, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Fear not, therefore, you are, more value of, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I, will, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The first challenge I want us to see here in verses 26 through 28 is this. Take God seriously and don't sweat what's temporary. It's hard to imagine the idea of someone threatening to kill us as being temporary. But that's what Jesus is talking about. The threat of death is just temporary. He starts out by explaining that lies may be told that malign a Christian's character But the truth will always eventually be known. I appreciated something I heard David Jeremiah said one time. He's quoted a proverb, time and truth walk hand in hand. In other words, given enough time, the truth is always known. Despite the opposition to Jesus' followers, we are to keep on sharing. The disciples were privileged to be taught by Christ and they were share that teaching with others. That's why he groups, uh, Matthew groups this teaching in with Jesus' commissioning instructions to his apostles prior to sending them out. Paul shared these principles that continue on in the New Testament and even today. Principles of what it means to spread God's truth, as he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach it to others also. God's truth is always meant to come from God, to come from Christ, to be passed on to others so that it can be passed on to others. As Warren Wiersbe says, our task is not to please men, but to proclaim God's message. The present judgment of men, meaning coming from men, does not frighten us because we are living in light of the future judgment of God. Because in Christ, in faith, we know that we pass that. Even in the case of someone might threaten to kill the body... They can't kill the soul. We're to be more concerned about the judge of all mankind. It's talking about God, the one who can both kill the body and the soul in hell. Martin Luther caught this truth when he wrote in the hymn that we sang last week, A Mighty Fortress, Let Goods and Kindred Go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The person who fears God, as one writer says, need never fear any man or group of men. The fear of God is the fear that cancels fear. The fear of God is the fear that cancels fear. We have a trouble here, though, with with the idea of being told "Fear not," and understanding that faith is something that 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 faith and fear are some are are intended to that faith is intended to cancel out fear. But yet, at the same time, we're told to fear God. Think of it this way, okay? Faith is the evidence of things unseen, as Hebrews 11 tells us. Our faith in God should be such that that we understand that no matter where we are, we are in the presence of God. What would you do if you stood in the presence of God? You'd be afraid. You'd be afraid not because of a concern that He's going to squash you. If you're in Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior knowing that Christ has paid the penalty of your sins. He has made up for the separation between you and God and made it so that you can, in fact, obey him and come boldly before his throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. But you would be fearful in the sense of being in awe of his mighty power, in awe of who he is. So to walk in faith in God is to walk in a fear of God Because it is a conviction of the truth that you stand in the presence of the Almighty God. The person who fears God need not be afraid. But on the other hand, there are far too many people who claim to believe in God. You know, I I they might even say, I I know what my life looks like, but don't worry, I believe. I believe in God. But don't trust him for anything in this life. The heart of the idea of biblical belief is to be convinced enough to entrust one's life. The term belief in the scriptures means to entrust. Means to to rest upon. I mean imagine a financial planner. You're you're meeting with uh, your friend who's a financial planner. And your statement to them is, I believe you when you say that setting money aside for the future is important. I believe you when you say the day is coming when I'm no longer going to be able to work. That if I'm spending everything that I make right now, that one day it's going to happen that I'm not able to make what I make right now. And so I'm going to be in problem in a, in a problem. But I just can't entrust my present financial situation. I just can't, can't set that aside. I can't, just can't trust what you're saying enough to change the way I'm living. I just, I just can't trust what you're saying enough to invest, to entrust what I'm making now in order to provide for the future. It's the same way believing in God means entrusting ourselves to God with today As well as with our destiny. Trusting him enough that it changes the way we live today. That eternal destiny should affect our lives in the present. And claiming to quote unquote believe in God in the present should result in rearranging our lives. According to that belief in the present. Sadly there's a tendency for those who call themselves Christians to say they trust God without obeying God. Trusting God should result in obeying God. As the hymn would say, trust and obey, for there is no other way. I think that fearing God results in trusting God and obeying God. By being um, <clears throat> seriously sincere, I, I mean it doesn't work to like be like the two, these two sailors that were lost at sea they were they were they were adrift on a life raft after days without seeing a single ship one of them finally convinces the other one we need to pray we need to repent we need we need to to ask god to help us here and the other says okay okay what if that's what it's going to take and so he says okay here, here I'll, I'll pray for us. Lord, we have been sailors for many years. We've cursed like sailors, we've drank like sailors, we've chased loose women in every port. But if I, if you spare our lives, we promise that we will change. We'll stop cursing, We'll stop And suddenly his friend cried out, "Stop, stop, stop, Hold on!" That's good enough. I see a ship coming. In other words, stop, you know, stop the list of things we say we'll stop doing. It worked. When people relegate God to only being needed to save them from their present situation or, or from e- the, a, an eternal destiny that they, that they don't want to be in, when they, when they only relegate God to do that, they, they often try to keep him out of messing with their everyday life. That's not living. In the fear of God. That's not walking in relationship with God. Walking in faith. Means walking as if. We're in God's physical presence now. Because in faith. We know we are in his presence. Now. And how would you respond? Respond to standing in God's presence. You'd stand in awe. You'd stand in reverent fear. After challenging us to leave our lives in God's hands, Jesus goes on to encourage us in how capable God's hands truly are. And from it, you can trust that God is in serious control of your care. Trust that God is in serious control of your care. We read in verses 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Sparrows were the cheapest animal that you could buy in the marketplace. A poor person would, would buy one and, and and take it home and pluck it and gut it and whichever and and throw it in the pot and that's how they would, you know, make a soup. And the penny, uh, with referring to the Asurion, of a Ro- it's a Roman copper coin. There was no coin that was minted that would be of a smaller value to, than, than that penny. And yet if you notice, uh, the sparrow is worth so little that you could get two of them with a penny. You know, they didn't make half a penny, so you couldn't buy one sparrow. It's, like, it's kind of like saying, well, we'll throw in the other sparrow for free. And yet, it says that not one of them falls, dies, apart from your father. By saying apart from your father, that's not just talking about God's knowledge. That's talking about God's involvement. God's, uh, without the consent of God, not a sparrow falls. We're getting into the infinite nature of the knowledge and involvement of God. God is so infinitely large that he can keep the planets, all of the stars in the universe, in their place. Yet so infinitely, intimately involved that he gives his consent for a single sparrow to fall. And we're encouraged here in verse 30. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So why does he get into this hairs of your head, right? This isn't saying God knows the count of the hairs of your head. He's saying he knows the individual number. Meaning Okay, guys, it's time for hair number 323 and hair number 584 to fall today. We're getting into, again, the infinite intimate involvement in the very smallest of details. Yes, those of us uh, who have fewer hairs, we can blame God for that, right? Right, lay it at the person's feet that's responsible. As John MacArthur writes, in other words, divine providence governs even the smallest details and even the most mundane matters. These are very powerful affirmations of the sovereignty of God. End quote. And the result of being told this is that we should fear not because God is intimately, infinitely, intimately involved. In the smallest details of our lives. We need not fear that God doesn't care for us even amidst the persecution that may come from obeying him. As God is sovereignly involved in the life and the death of the smallest of animals, he is far more involved in our lives. Or as the New Testament commentary says, nothing in God's world is outside his concern or control, yet sparrows and Christians do die. This saying does not promise escape from suffering or even death, but the knowledge that the time of death's arrival is in the hands of your father. Think of the care that parents give to a baby. You know, two grandsons born uh, three months apart from each other. I'm amazed to see, like, there's a lot of work that goes into caring for these little guys. You know, you feed them, you change them, you carry them, you protect them. We're just getting into those days of, like, keep things out of reach, right? God's infinite care is applied to his children like a parent for their child. He's orchestrating the Christian's care down to being involved in the loss of a single hair, and he knows which hair it is. That's what we're told here. We can trust that what, what he is allowing to come along in our lives is for his glory and our good. So whatever be, it be illness, it be illness or health, plenty or want, empowerment or limitation, we can trust that God is in the middle of it all. None of it means that he has missed a step. And we should feel free, we should feel freed up to be serious about seeking to bring him glory in every circumstance and leaving the details to him. From one of our hard sayings of Christ, That we see here in verses 32 through 33. I want to encourage you lastly to be serious about your allegiance to Christ. Be serious about your allegiance to Christ. He says so. So it's kind of like summarizing here. Everyone who acknowledges me before men. I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That verse 33 really sticks to us. It really makes us stop and go, whoa, what is he talking about here? But understand here, let's deal with verse 32 here. And understand that that's so there. It's that inferential, this is what I'm inferring from what I'm saying. This is what I mean to explain here. That... Think in terms of do not fear. If you're acknowledging me before man, I've got the Father taken care of. If if you have experienced life with me here on this earth, I am preparing for your life with me for all of eternity. That walking in fear starts with walking in faith. When he talks about acknowledge, the, the term is homologio. We know homo means same. Logio talks about uh, message, word. It's actually be of the same mind. Acknowledging, uh, being in the same with me. Basically it means public profession of allegiance with Christ. Acknowledging Jesus it is a statement of I am one of his followers. The same would be said by Jesus with the Father when it comes time for him to claim us. Father, she's one of mine. He's one of mine. This is talking specifically, if you notice here, both of these, verse 32 and 33, is talking about what you do now, I will do. So it's that future of stepping into God's presence. In that situation there, it's like, Father, this is one of mine. And it's based on the fact that we walked with him here on this earth. Our ultimate destiny is defined by whether Jesus claims us as his disciple. And that is shown in moments when we're tempted to deny that he is our Lord and Savior. But don't miss this idea that basically our place, and eternity has to do with how we deal with Christ now. It's about Jesus. When he goes on to say, those who, the one who denies me, this means to, to disassociate with a person, to disown a person. The person that has disassociated himself from Christ is not going to be claimed by Christ. In the end. Now, baptism is an excellent beginning of a person's walk with Christ. It is a public acknowledgement of Christ as our Lord and Savior. The Christian's personal walk with Christ should begin with obeying Him in this way. But these verses repudiate the mindset that baptism somehow. Uh, um, proves a person's salvation, right? As if, well, see, I was baptized, so it doesn't mean what I do from that point forward. Baptism shouldn't be treated like some sort of magic ceremony that seals a person in Christ, even when the person walks away from them, according to these verses. And the same could be said for a person who, who prays to receive Christ, yet never associates himself with Christ. A person who prays to receive Christ or or gets baptized and then walks away from that situation and basically says, no, I'm not with Christ. That's not a a saving situation. A saving work of the gospel that generates a response of trust and obedience is going to result in a life of steady growth of trust and obedience. It may be three steps forward and two steps back. But it's not going to involve walking away from Christ without returning. You know, ships, as they sail the sea, they are actually required by maritime law, they are required to fly the flag of the country of the ship's registration. It's not supposed to happen that that a ship... As, say, it's, it's traveling through the Mediterranean Sea, they're like, okay, I think it'd be best if we uh, fly the Italian flag in this situation. Or as they fly, uh, sh- float through the Indian Ocean, maybe along the coast of Somalia or something like that. You know, I, bet, I think we better change that, that flag of registration and claim another country. That's actually against maritime law. A ship's flag might get them in trouble in one area of the world. It might cause the crew to be in danger with the enemies of their country. But it allows them to be welcomed into the safe harbor when they arrive home. Basically, it's one or the other. Either safety out there on the waters, you know, switching your flag back and forth are being welcomed back into safe harbor of your home country. When a person dies and they come into port, if you will, come back into safe harbor, what matters is what was their relationship with Christ during this life. Did they know Christ as their Savior? Were they reborn, indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Were they allied with Christ? Or did they refuse his lordship in their lives? Did they change their allegiance depending on what group of people they were with? It's not going to matter if they said a prayer asking God to save them or if they they turned away from Christ. It's not going to matter if they got baptized, if they didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. Let's take a few minutes and, and address this uh, as a hard saying of Jesus, right? We did this last week because this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, it's it's really, like I said, verse 33 that kind of stands out and gives us concern. Is Jesus describing some situation where our faith is tested and we might possibly go from being a redeemed child of God with the Holy Spirit indwelling us to then being disowned by Christ because we disowned Him? That is not what this is describing. That is not describing, this is not describing some process whereby a reborn follower of Christ can somehow then be disowned by Christ. By Failing some sort of test. You know, Albert Moeller said something this past week that, that I really appreciated. He we was talking about when Christians go through testing. And the question that he was answering was this. If God knows everything, if God knows the outcome of a test that we might go through, if you will, why does he test us? And this is something that, 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 that really I appreciated uh, very much and I learned a lot from this statement. He said, God does not test us in order for him to learn about us. We're, we go through testing so that we can learn about us. Or put it this way, tests of our faith don't show God, show God who we truly are. Tests of our faith show us who we truly are to fail a test of whether we will acknowledge Christ doesn't mean we're condemned to hell also failing this test should allow for us to respond with alarm and repentance because here's the deal the sinner's prayer or baptism like I said shouldn't be treated like some sort of magic ceremony that makes a person in Christ And in the same way, denying Christ shouldn't be treated like some sort of silver bullet that somehow removes a Christian from Christ. That's not what's being taught here. In the same way that some magic ceremony doesn't put you in Christ. The point that Jesus is making here is that following him in this life, acknowledging him, means he will claim us before the Father. But on this issue of denying Christ, let's look at the experience of Peter here. I think we've got a couple minutes to do this. So we understand, and I'm giving you references here, and I'm sorry that we don't have them in your notes here this morning. But I'm giving you these so that you can look at these in your own personal study. Peter, we understand, disowned Christ, even having walked side by side with him, was repentant and was restored. You can see how Peter denied Jesus as his Lord in Mark 14, especially in verses 69 through 72. You can read about in verses 71. He says, "As Peter was was challenged, weren't you with this Jesus as Jesus is being beaten and and and, um, and is going to be going to the cross?" We read in um, Mark 14. Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So does this mean, uh uh-oh, according to Jesus' teaching, Peter's out because he denied Christ. Well, we see Peter restored In John 21, especially verses 15 through 17, I'll let you look at that on your own. But let me say this. We see a different Peter once he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You can see in Acts 3, verses 13 through 14, as he's preaching to the very Jews that crucified Christ... He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one. This is the same Peter, but indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4 of Acts, verses 8 through 11, you can read this where he says to the, to the rulers of the Jews who could have delivered him up to death just like he, they did Jesus just days before. Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And he goes on to say in verses 19 and 20, and when they warn them, say, okay, we're going to let you go, but stop preaching about this Jesus that we put to death. And Peter's response is, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. fact is this, denying Christ to be our Lord and Savior is not good. And it can be a sign that we aren't truly his but as we see in Peter's life it doesn't mean that a person can't be restored like I said it's not some sort of silver bullet that puts somebody outside of grace but I think we also see in the life of Peter as a person indwelt by the Holy Spirit is going to have a different boldness and not likely to deny Christ The, this, this statement is true. Nothing can remove the Holy Spirit from a born again Christian. I take that especially from Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, if you would like to get together and talk more about this, because these are hard sayings, but I would love to walk any one of you through these things specifically. But the conclusion conclusion of this is, is really this. The indwelling Holy Spirit would likely keep a Christian from denying Christ as their Savior. That's where I fall. As we conclude. The, the whole concept here this morning. Of, of being serious. Having a serious sincerity. About following Christ. I want to share with you. Again I shared this poem. Some years ago. The poem was. was written about a missionary. By named. John Walker Vinson. He was a missionary in northern China in the early 1900s, and it was written by a fellow missionary that heard about John Walker Vinson's moment of death. John Walker Vinson, like I said, he was a missionary in northern China in the early 1900s. He was held up by bandits. While he was in a particularly lawless region sharing the gospel, he was held at gunpoint and asked, are you afraid? No, he replied. If if you shoot me, I go straight to heaven. Why would I be afraid? Hearing this account from someone who escaped the situation, his missionary friend wrote this poem. This poem. Saying this, afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, brief darkness, light, O oh heaven's art. A wound of his, a counterpart, afraid of that. Afraid of what? To enter into heaven's rest and yet to serve the master blessed from service good to service best. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptized with blood a stony plot. Till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? We can have a serious sincerity about following Christ. When we put our eyes on him. When we listen to his teaching. When we recognize that in, in In acknowledging him before man, it's evidence that he is acknowledging us before the Father. And that allows us to not have to be afraid of anything on this earth. Let's bow our heads. Father God, you are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our attention. You are worthy of our love. And yet we recognize, Lord, in our sinfulness and walking in this sinful world, if we didn't have your Holy Spirit in our lives, we wouldn't love you at all. Our sinful hearts would take over. Lord God, thank you so much for walking with us by your grace. Thank you so much for the opportunity to recognize that we are not able to save ourselves. That our sin hinders even our most righteous deeds from being useful at all for impressing you. But thank you, Lord, that as we walk in faith on this earth we can be convinced of your presence and of your welcome. That we can reverence you And not have to fear anyone. Lord, I pray that you'd give us boldness with family members, with neighbors. So that we can share your truth with joy. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.